0: Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air condition. I hope you'll visit the website and give them a call. It's johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including guests Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, and Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. It is August the 13th, and on this day in 1997, 21-year-old Tiger Woods Won the prestigious Masters Tournament by a record 12 strokes in Augusta, Georgia. It was Woods' first victory in one of golf's four major championships, the U.S. Open, the British Open, PGA Championship, and the Masters. And the greatest performance by a professional golfer in more than a century. It also made him the youngest golfer by two years to win the Masters and the first person of Asian and African heritage to win the major. Eldrick... Tiger Woods was born in a suburb of Los Angeles, California on December the thirtieth, nineteen seventy-five. The only child of an African American father and Thai mother. Woods was encouraged from infancy by his father for a career in golf. At the age of two, he teed off against comedian Bob Hope on television's Mike Douglas show. At five years old, he was featured on a television show that's incredible. At age 8, Woods won his first major junior world championship, and in 1991, at the age of 15, he became the youngest player ever to win the U.S. Junior Championship. That's the amateur championship. He also captured the 1992 and 93 junior amateur titles, and in 1994 accepted a scholarship to attend Stanford University. That year he came from six holes behind to win the first of his three consecutive U.S. Amateur Championships, he was 18 years old when the youngest amateur champion in history. In 1995, Woods played in the Masters, his first professional major championship. The Augusta National Golf Club, which runs the Masters, had not African American pl- joined its ranks until 1991. 41st in his first Masters appearance. In '96, he won the collegiate title. By this time, he had already attracted considerable media attention and attracting throngs of new fans to the sport. After claiming his third U.S. amateur title, Woods left college and turned professional in August of 1996. Playing as a pro in eight professional golf association events in '96, he won a title that was named the PGA Tour's Outstanding Rookie. In '96, he was celebrated by magazine Sports Illustrated as Sportsman of the Year. In professional play, Woods' most uh, opponents were, uh, were in their late 30s or 40s. At 6'2 and 155 pounds, he was slender and athletic and developed a devastating swing that routinely allowed him to hit drives more than 300 yards. He also had a reputation for mental toughness and was a superb putter and chipper. All these attributes came together for the most decisive victory in Masters' 44-year history. Margin of victory, 12 strokes, was the largest in 20th century. And second only to old Tom Morris, 13-shot margin in 1862 in the British Open. His score of 18 under par uh, broke Jack Nicklaus' 32-year-old master's record of 17 under par. By June 1997, Woods was ranked number one in the world. In 1999, he won uh, eight PGA tournaments, recorded uh, $6 million in earnings, and began a winning streak that eventually tied Ben Hogan's 1948 streak, the second longest in PGA history. In June 2000, he won his first Open title, shooting a record 12 under par uh, to finish 15 strokes ahead of the nearest competitor. He was the greatest professional golf performance in history, surpassing even his 97 Masters Triumph. In uh, 2000, he captured the British Open in August the PGA Championship. At the age of 24, he was the youngest player ever to win all four major titles and just the second to win three majors in a year. On April 10, 2005, he earned his fourth green uh, sports coat at Augusta National, becoming the first person to win four Masters before the age of 30. Woods' winning pace slowed around 2004 when he devoted time to reworking his swing and rehabilitating his surgically repaired knee. It was also during this period he married uh, Ellen Norwege- Mor- Nordegan. <clears throat> i mispronounced that—I apologize—but a Swedish former model who had become the mother of his two children. He was back on top on form in 2005, winning his 10th major. His performance fluctuated throughout the rest of the decade as he struggled with a torn ACL and personal problems that garnered substantial media attention. In 2009, in the uh, wake of uh, events surrounding a car accident outside Woods' Florida home, several women came forward claiming to have had affairs with the famous golfer. She was divorced in 2010, just as Woods began his first winless season in his career. After dropping from the international rankings, Woods started, uh, started rebounding in 2013. He won the Masters Tournament in 2019, his first major championship win in 11 years. And, of course, now the visual of seeing him walking up the 18th fairway uh, this past weekend and uh, hobbling up, I would say. I'm sure he was in great pain, but you could all see the joy, see the joy in his eyes for what he was experiencing. And born in 1975, here he's almost 50 years of age. That wonderful past, what a life he's lived, and what a performance he's brought us all as a professional golfer. Well, speaking of golf, when it comes to best places to play golf, you know, it's no uh, surprise that uh, the Sunshine State dominates the uh, shout-outs. According to department guides' data research, Naples is the number two city for golfers in America. Number one, believe it or not, Bandon, Oregon. Uh, Bandon Dunes, of course, is the uh, wonderful golf course out there. Uh, Apartment guide study factors from course availability to prestigious rankings from golf cities across the country. Also taken into consideration with the city hosting prominent uh, pro events and catering to locals. Not too far down the list was uh, Fort Myers and Lee County at number 12. The Villages at 11. Orlando at 13. Bonita Springs uh, came in Ranked at 48 out of 50. From, uh, this is from Apartment Guide. The name of the game in G- Gulf Coast City is Volume. For a population of just 20,000, the city offers 155 courses, the most for any city overall. Naples has an environment one would expect for a city rife with golf courses. It's a well-to-do city with six highest average income in the nation. And some of the world's highest real estate prices, it's also extremely popular for retirees with median age of 66 years of age. Of course, that's all true. And the other big factors, of course, are the pro tournaments that are played here. The LPGA's season-ending CME group uh, championship in November. And, of course, Greg Norman's uh, QBE shootout in December and senior PGA championship tour Chubb Classic in February uh, played at Tiburon. Gulf uh, and uh, Naples were number two in the nation. Well, President uh, Biden gave a speech Tuesday afternoon in, in Iowa and got a really crappy response, <laughs> literally, according to a video posted uh, by the Re- Na- Republic National Committee. A bird excreted on the president in the middle of his talk right there in his lapel. Uh, he was saying he made him in-America talk was not hyperbole when a white splotch... <laughs> From, from above appeared on his lapel. He apparently felt something, his eyes turned towards the foul, uh, towards the suit. But he continued undisturbed to his everlasting credit. Mr. Biden was, Biden was given the speech at, bar, at a barn in Menlo, Iowa, talking of his administration's assistance to farming the farming industry. Well, speaking of which uh, Mr. Biden, the president, The United States marked its uh, highest 12-month increase of inflation in March, with consumer prices rising 8.5%, a high not seen in four decades. And data released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics on Tuesday, they revealed that the Consumer Price Index, which measures the consumer side prices of uh, items like energy, food, and rent, rose 1.2% in February, from February, I should say. Amazing. That's a lot. Economists had predicted that inflation would surge to 8.4% over 12 months and in 1.2% in March alone. Inflation has also eaten away at wage gains that Americans have experienced over recent months. Real average earnings decreased 0.8% in March from the previous month as the 1.2% inflation increase eroded the 0.4% total wage gain according to the Labor Department. That's not good for Americans. The survey found that consumers believe things like gasoline, food, medical care, rent, and college tuition will get more expensive for them to buy in the near future. Not looking good, the picture on inflation. Very few Americans believe the nation is doing very well under President Joe Biden's leadership. This is according to a Sunday CBS News poll after only 7% of Americans believe, 7% believe the country is doing very well, while 33% say the nation is doing very badly on the economy. 9% of Americans say Biden's national economy is doing well. 31% say it's doing badly. On whether Biden is doing enough to reduce 40-year high inflation, only 31% say he is, while 69% say he's not. Biden's approval with independents is also struggling. Only 12% of independents strongly approve of the president, 41% strongly disapprove. So there you have it uh, right now. Of course, he's calling it uh, the Putin or Russian inflation. People aren't buying it. They're saying exactly what's happening. And there's more bad news following Deutsche Bank. Economists are predicting a recession within the next two years. Two shocks in recent months, the war in Ukraine and the buildup of momentum in elevated U.S. and European inflation have caused us to revise down our forecast for global growth significantly, they wrote. We are now projecting a recession in the U.S. and a growth recession in euro area within the next two years. <clears throat> Not good news. On Tuesday, the Consumer Price Index will be released with reportedly worse inflation news. While the survivors of Tuesday morning's subway attack in Brooklyn now described how they sat next to the gunman as he pulled an axe and gun from his duffel bag before he threw a smoke grenade and fired 33 shots, leaving 10 people injured with bullet wounds, a witness said the suspect said, oops, my bad, as he opened one of his gas tanks and filled the subway car with smoke uh, when it was between stations before he pulled out his weapon and opened fire. A multi-state manhunt is now underway for Frank James, who's 62 years of age, who is a person of interest in the attack, with police offering a $50,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. Overall crime in New York, by the way, is up 44.3% from last year. Transit crimes are up 68% and shooting incidents are up 8.4%. This is according to the latest numbers for the New York Police Department. This is really bad news now. The mayor in New York, as well as the president, is calling for more gun control. That's going to solve the problem? I don't think so. What would solve the problem is funding the police and acknowledging the police and law and order. All this crime that's that's going up right now is, in my opinion, due to uh, blue states defunding the police and not acknowledging the importance of law and order in their communities. Well, the embattled CNN cable network looks to have another situation on its hands. The underwhelming launch of its new streaming service, CNN Plus, the service's total number of uh, daily viewers, has yet to surpass 10,000, according to reports. Fueling speculation, the network's new parent company, Discovery Warner Media, could be pushed into slashing costs even at CNN Plus as it tries to get off the ground. The latest black eye for the left-leaning network comes after a tumultuous year when its chief, Jeff Zucker, stepped down after admitting a consensual relationship with Allison Gollust, his former lieutenant at the company. It also comes after the star anchor Chris Cuomo was fired for his involvement advising his brother, former New York City Governor Andrew Cuomo, as he faced sexual harassment uh, scandal. The fledgling streaming company has pushed for big names to draw people to the service, including hiring former Fox News, Chris Wallace. Uh, Chris Wallace is gnashing teeth right now. I'm sure he's very unhappy, but this uh, looks like things are going to be slashed. Costs are going to be slashed. And I think Chris Wallace is going to end up on the outside. I think his assessment of his situation was pretty poor and he's going to be paying a price. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning Naples longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network.
1: Forty-five,
0: forty-one. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and building a performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more and get tickets by visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author. He's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
2: We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and devoted to private property, free markets, Securing Individual Rights and Limited Government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G, on the web.
1: Thank you, Bob. Uh, so uh, we've been talking about the, the tension and really uh, the uh, what's happened to the Constitution under the Supreme Court since the, in the modern era. want to move to national security versus—and the tension between national security versus uh, civil liberties— And just start off with the—didn't the the Supreme Court approve unilateral executive authority over national security when uh, it authorized the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II?
2: Yes, it did. Uh, Korematsu versus United States, 1944. Uh, This was three months after the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, I'm sorry— That's when it occurred, three months after the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. The decision was 1944. FDR issued an executive order that gave military commanders nearly total discretion to exclude persons from designated areas that supposedly had military significance. And Kuramatsu, a, uh, an American citizen of Japanese descent, uh, violated the exclusion order, and he was sent to a Relocation Center, described more as a concentration camp by Supreme Court Justice Owen Roberts. Uh, There was no question ever raised regarding his loyalty to the U.S. He'd never been to Japan, didn't claim Japanese citizenship, didn't read Japanese, spoke the language poorly. Uh, Over the next two years, 120,000 Japanese Americans, including 70,000 U.S. citizens, uh, were confined to internment camps. None of these uh, was convicted of espionage or sabotage or even accused of disloyalty. And by the end of the war, Japanese American troops had received 18,000 declarations for valor mm. from the United States. And it wasn't until mid 1946 that the last residents of these camps uh, were able to return to their homes clearly a blemish on the United States.
1: A real black mark on the freedoms of Americans in the United States so because of their nationality. So what was the courts holding, and what was the uh, aftermath?
2: Well, in this 1944 decision written by Hugo Black, who was a self-proclaimed civil libertarian, um, he invoked national security and absolved the Roosevelt administration. From any blame. Mm. Uh, 40 years later, 1983, the Commission on Wartime Justice found unanimously that Roosevelt's executive order uh, was not justified by military necessity, but was instead the product of race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. And five years after that, President Reagan authorized reparations of $20,000 each hmm. for thousands of these uh, internees, including uh, Fred Korematsu. And then in 1999, Bill Clinton awarded Korematsu a Presidential Medal of Freedom, which, as you know, is the nation's highest uh, civilian honor.
1: So interesting. So if there's a, is there a modern-day counterpart to the Korematsu case?
2: Yeah, if you think that indefinite detention of U.S. citizens with no charges filed and no access to a lawyer, if you think that ended with the Korematsu case, then think again, because there was the case of uh, Jose Padilla, which we've talked about in the past. He was a U.S. citizen seized in Chicago and confined to uh, solitary confinement for the better part of five years. Hmm. No charges, no visitation, no legal counsel. He was ultimately convicted on criminal charges uh, filed only after the Supreme Court was about to order his release on the national security charge. The criminal charges had little to do with his alleged plan to set off a dirty bomb. So, I mean, just to clarify, I'm not an apologist for Padilla. I think he may have deserved even worse than he he received. Mm -hmm. But we do have a rule of law. And at a minimum, it means that an American citizen can't be seized off the streets of a a U.S. city and whisked away and incarcerated indefinitely and held incommunicado and given no chance to argue uh, that he was mistakenly uh, detained. So, you know, Korematsu set the stage for this. Uh, It's not that courts were invoking Korematsu to justify this kind of executive power. Uh, because the holding in that case, I think, was recognized as an anachronism. Uh, it was overruled in the court of history, mm-hmm. even if not officially repudiated by the Supreme Court, until the Trump travel ban case in uh, June of 2018. But Korematsu's challenge, uh, if it had been upheld back in the 1940s, I think it would have stood as a sort of a barrier to excess excessive concentrations of power in the executive branch. But instead, the court condoned Roosevelt's uh, unconstitutional internment policy and passed up a chance to establish legal precedent that might have deterred some of these future uh, acts of executive misbehavior.
1: Yeah, an even uh, more modern example, I think, would be the prisoners from January the 6th. I mean, some of these people haven't been charged yet, haven't... Uh had a court date set. They're still in jail after all these months. It's uh, just incredible.
2: Indeed. This is the due process requirement in the Constitution. Of course, there's always the dilemma of establishing what process is due, but clearly detainment without charges, without access to visitation or or attorneys, uh, this is impermissible in the Constitution.
1: Absolutely. So what about President's war powers? Doesn't he have more authority in that area?
2: Well, he does have the authority to wage war as Commander-in-Chief, but that still has its limits. Uh, First of all, it's about waging war, not about declaring war. Uh, Congress's job is to declare. And second, uh, the Constitution gives Congress the power, not the President, but Congress, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. And third, war, as you know, requires money, and Congress retains uh, the power of the purse. So to help resolve that uh, debate, Mm -hmm. Congress passed the War Powers Act um, back in 1973 over a veto by President Nixon. And under that act, military action is authorized only if there's either a declaration of war by Congress some other statutory authority by Congress, or an attack on U.S. interests. And if it's an attack, then the president has to notify Congress within 48 hours and then withdraw all forces in 60 days if Congress doesn't say okay. So, you know, you have to remember that the animating sentiment at the time of the founding was this fear of too much executive power sort of a return of the king. Mm -hmm. And against that uh, backdrop, presidents have consistently, both parties, claimed uh, unilateral powers with very few safeguards, a presumption that nearly anything they do in the foreign policy and National Security Arena is okay. But I think we have to remember that the president, he may be commander-in-chief of the armed forces. That is not the same as commander-in-chief of the entire nation.
1: So true. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute. I really appreciate these discussions on our civil liberties and, of course, national security. Uh, Cato.org is the website, C A T O.org. Bob, we always, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Andrew Joppa. He is a professor and author of Josephus of Oz, that and more, right here in the Bob Hardin Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples' only vitality and longevity practice where acupuncture, medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a -a one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website iamdesignedtoheal.com. That's iamdesignedtoheal.com or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit iamdesignedtoheal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind restorative experience. You have questions about your retirement?
0: Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. We have with us Andrew Joppa. He's a professor. He's also the author of a terrific read, Off-topic for today's discussion, but take a look at it. It's called Josephus of Oz. Josephus, of course, the great historian, Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So usually we start off with a little good news. Uh, so any good news for us today?
3: Well, I, I've done that in, uh, in, in opposition to your view of me, that I'm an eternal pessimist. So I, <laughs> I do start out with the good news to prove that I'm not always that way, Bob. So there's good news. I think there's actually good news today. Uh, I think uh, I'll f- focus on Elon Musk. Uh, Elon Musk, who bought a 9.2% share of Twitter, Uh, was going to go on the board of Twitter and then decided not to. Uh, The general view of why that uh, might be happening is that he might be trying to accomplish a hostile takeover of Twitter. Uh, And I think if that happened, that would be very good news. I think the technocrats worldwide are squirming a bit with that potential. Uh, they try to create a unified uh, dogma worldwide, both on uh, in the media and on the social uh, media platforms, uh, that is unified in in one voice coming from the the technocrats. If in fact Twitter was to be able to penetrate that and create a uh, a view in opposition uh, to their dogmatic positions, it would perhaps change the whole equation of what's going on in the world and particularly in American politics. So uh, I see Elon Musk as being a, a real piece of good news. And of course, uh, with the threat he offers, the, uh, the left immediately started to accuse him of being a racist, someone who was still... Uh, uh, Desiring the apartheid policies of his native South Africa, uh, <laughs> and now they're, they're accusing him of, of, of delaying too long in releasing the information of his purchase of uh, of <clears throat> of Twitter uh, Twitter assets. So uh, you know that was to be anticipated. But I think when you when you see the left attacking someone uh, like Musk, uh, there is a real concern. <laughs> About the implication of what he might offer with a free speech platform uh, that might that Twitter might become.
1: That is such an interesting observation. I I agree. By the way, I think you know the reason why he didn't go on the board is the board uh, as a board member, you're limited to less than fifteen percent shares. Owning fifteen percent of the shares of Twitter, he now can go out and buy more if he wants to. Plus, then he can start making demands for other for board members of his own. And he can start to, you know, I just wonder how long the CEO, who is not a free speech advocate, is going to last at Twitter, because I think he's going to, it could be just 30 days and he could be gone
3: well we'll have to see how it plays out i mean i think he has to reach a stronger leverage position than his 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 own asset uh, investment uh, i think he'll need to have other investors that that, that sign over their proxy to him in the right. uh, in the in these battles that will follow uh, but i think this uh, certainly the first time that uh, that we've seen a possible break in this technocrat uh, uh, unity Uh, That has really been the major, I would describe it as the major problem we've looked at over the past 10 years, Bob. Uh, Uh, I would sort of, if you want to say anything else about that. No,
1: that's a great observation. I agree with that. And the other good news that comes along with that is Zuckerberg has said that he's not going to be investing, quote unquote, investing in the elections. In this cycle, he over 400 million put in last time. Now this movie or documentary rigged. It's about a 35 minute documentary. I don't know if you've seen it, but it is outstanding, and I think it gave uh, Zuckerberg the willies. It says, "Oh my goodness, they're up there. They're in on what I'm doing." So. Uh, I think I think he's I'm
3: also I'm also of the mind that perhaps Zuckerberg doesn't want to throw good money after bad. I uh, you know, I think all of the projections right now for the uh, Democrat fortunes in the 2022 midterms uh, are are not good. Um, Certainly, I always say that with the uh, the the uh, the uh, the, uh, one. Negative possibility is, is of course, the uh, fraudulent elections. But leaving that out of the equation, there is there should be no doubt that a legal election. The the Democrats will, uh, I think, be seriously damaged politically in the House and the and and probably in the Senate in 2022. And I I think Zuckerberg is not is not a fool with his money. Uh, Generally, sometimes he is. But I think right now he doesn't want to put more money into something that's a losing cause. Hmm. Somewhat related to that, I think we can weave in not one of my favorite characters, uh, probably not one of yours, but Al Sharpton. Uh, Al Sharpton has a a long history of destructive black radicalism. He's been an anti-Semite, has done a lot of destructive things. For example, the Crown Heights situation uh, in Brooklyn. But right now, Al Sharpton is also seeing the handwriting on the wall. Uh, He is suggesting that the black community uh, is moving away from uh, Democrat policies that uh, they, if they're uh, suggesting in that community, Al Sharpton is suggesting uh, that they're, they're finding the Democrat policies create an unsafe community and uh, the, uh, the policies are damaging the the educational experience. And in general, the black community is moving away. Uh, now, whether that translates into uh, changes in voting pattern, you know, is, is open to debate. But certainly I think Sharpton's observation is correct. Uh, that the black community sees very little advantage in in adhering to to black uh, to uh, Democrat policies, and one would hope that that would also uh, carry over in, into the voting process itself. By the way, and, and Sharpton's positions were also supported by uh, a black professor, one of my favorites, uh, Wilfred Riley. Uh, I would recommend for any of your listeners, if they if they have not had the opportunity to uh, take a look at Wilfred Riley's book, A Taboo. Published, I think, in 2020, but just just an excellent book in in offering uh, opposing views to all of these uh, these leftist talking points that we've been exposed to over the last uh, couple of decades. So, and and uh, Wilfred Riley is also talking about Democrat policies and how they're damaging the blue black community. He talks about um, police, the funding, and how how that has hurt. The black community more than any any other community. Mm-hmm. He talks about the uh, the black the Democrat attacks on charter schools, and he suggests that has also been to the detriment of the black community. So we're seeing this type of action from uh, a black radical and a a somewhat black conservative, Wilfred Riley, uh, both talking from the same same position that Democrat policies are being are destructive to the black community and are being rejected. By that community, Bob.
1: You know, I I agree, and I think uh, Al Sharpton and his comments—that's the canary in the coal mine—and I think that's going to indicate a real change uh, in the in the uh, voting pattern of blacks here in America. I mean, they've been for years now totally neglected, I think, by their black leaders, and uh, quite frankly, Donald Trump offered—and by the way, that's what I see also—the expansion uh, in the tent of people who have hope for America, making America great again. I think that the number of voters who get behind that theme is going to grow and grow, and it's not going to be just Republicans. I think it's going to be Democrats, Hispanics, blacks, you name it. I think we're going to see people wanting to make America great again and get away from this agenda, this globalist agenda that is diminishing our rights.
3: Yeah, I, I certainly support that, Bob. You know, and I, I, I hope that that comes to pass. I, I think there have been uh, too many projections in the past about the movement of the black community uh, away from the uh, the Democrat left, and and uh, they have not been fulfilled in the voting booth. But this time seems different. I I think we're looking at uh, uh, some serious uh, negatives that are being identified in that black community, and now being supported. Uh, by, uh, by Black spokespeople. And I'm not going to call them leaders necessarily, but certainly spokespeople for that community. Uh, so I think there's a good chance that we're going to see some significant movement in numbers uh, towards the, the Republican Party in, uh, in the 2022 midterms. I, I've got a third piece of good news, and it's not going to seem that way, so you have to give me a moment to explain it, but I'm going to give one cheer of good news, only one cheer for inflation. Uh, now, why inflation? That uh, it's, It seems inappropriate to do so, and I it really is, Bob. But if, if inflation persists at its current level and carries forward through the 2022 midterms, I mean, that could be the absolute death nail for the Democrat Party, not just in 2022, but it could be a, a decade-long uh, problem for the— Uh, for the um, for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, the the March uh, inflationary level came in at uh, eight point five percent. If that rate from March is projected out over the full year coming ahead, it'll reflect itself in a 14 percent inflationary level. That'll just be slightly short of the all time 15 percent that we hit in 1981. Uh, So this inflation is is a is a a serious issue. Uh, I'm, I'm half-heartedly supporting it because of its political implication. Uh, right now, there is some talk of the uh, of the Fed raising interest rates which is going to be done to try to cool down the, the overheated economy and control inflation. And of course, when the Fed raises their interest rates, you have to watch very carefully that it doesn't create a recession. Uh, Larry Summers, the former head of the Treasury Department, uh, is not predicting, but he's suggesting by historical standards, when there is 4% uh, or, or, or less unemployment and 4% or more inflation, in every year since the, the war years of World War II. That has resulted the next year in a recessionary economy. So I think we're looking at these type of things right now, and uh, most of them are not good news. Uh, if we have confidence in the Fed to uh, control themselves as they, uh, as they juggle the, the, uh, the interest rates, you know, then perhaps we can escape uh, both inflation and a recession. If they do it wrong, we might actually have both, Bob.
1: Yeah, one other piece of good news is that uh, I understand that Romney is now considering not running for his seat in 2024. I think I consider that to be good news, and also the fact that uh, most of the people that Trump is standing behind ha- are doing quite well in their re-elections or in their elections. So uh, that all bodes well for making America great again. I think that's great news.
3: You know, I I think that's good news. I agree with you. I prefer to have Romney soundly defeated. <laughs> with a high-level plurality against them rather than, than not running. But, you know, we'll take what we can get. And I think Romney not running is an indication that he recognizes that he's on the wrong end of history, side of history, Bob. So I think that that certainly, that certainly is, is good news. Um, you know, and again, projecting towards the 2022s, if, if everything goes as reality demands, I think we're going to see a significant uh, qualitative change in America. Uh, as a result of those elections, I can predict a, a 20-seat a increase in the House uh, for, the, for the Republicans at minimum. And I'm projecting at least a three-seat in, three increase uh, in, the, in the Senate, uh, bringing it to a 53-47 Republican majority. Those two things, if they occur, and there's every reason to believe they will occur, will totally change the fabric of this society almost overnight, Bob.
1: From your lips to God's ear. Andy, I need to take a little break, can you stick around?
3: By the way, my words have never been in God's
2: ear before, but check out. I'll, <laughs> All I'll right. try it.
1: All right, Andy, you're on hold. We're gonna have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show. Here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Show. And now here's your host, Bob
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Always good to be with you,
1: Bob. So, Andy, you wrote a really interesting piece on uh, uh, white educated, college-educated women. Maybe you could tell us about it.
3: Well, that was uh, it's something I've been aware of uh, because of my readings and, and uh, interests uh, over the last decade or so. Um, certainly with the comments of Al Sharpton somewhat moving away from the Democratic Party, it was, it was uh, made uh, manifest, made obvious that the only demographic that is moving towards the left, towards the Democrat left in greater numbers, is the white college-educated woman? Uh, that is the only demographic that is really supporting the entire Democrat Party in a way. Uh, it's been described as the Democrat Party is the party of woke women. That is what it is, mm-hmm. uh, and I think you know what what is happening in this uh, four years that these uh, college women manifest, that marinate uh, in the in the college environment they come out uh, and they hold on to these. Uh, to these uh, doctrines far more emphatically than men. Uh, men have moved the since 2018 by, by 26% from the Democrat left. Uh, the, the women, the, the college-educated women, have increased their support of the Democrat left by 18% since 2018. Hmm. And there's no other demographic in America that is moving in that direction. So I'm pointing out that the uh, men have not proven to be, college-educated men have not proven to be the problem. But certainly college-educated women, it can be well-defined statistically, uh, have moved in support uh, of the Democrat Party and are really the only thing at this point propping it up. Uh, I carried that discussion forward uh, to indicate that if we look at that population of, uh, of white college-educated women and under, try to understand what's going on in our public schools uh, with the elementary school teachers uh, uh, investing their time in gender identification Lectures and a very uh, dramatic, uh, f- full uh, presentation on sexuality to uh, children as young as five or six. Uh, you know, the same women that I just described that are the ones that are uh, supporting the the Democrat Party are also the same women that are in our school system. Uh, approximately seventy-five percent of the teachers in our public schools are white. College educated women. Hmm. So that I'm sorry, 73%. Let me give you the right number as far as the most recent compilation of statistics. 73% of the teachers in our public school elementary level are white college educated women. I do not personally, let me just speak for myself. I do not want these women being the primary source of educating our, our young children. I think it is one of the reasons the education system is failing. I think it's one of the reasons we're seeing such an, uh, an abundance of sexuality uh, being infused into the education process. And I think we have to take a serious look uh, at how to uh, get away from this. I, I suggested, uh, uh, perhaps half-heartedly, but I suggested uh, that I'm not in favor of equity in any, any other area, But perhaps if we move to more male teachers, real males, as I point out, real male teachers into the public schools, perhaps if we were to support charter schools uh, more emphatically and where it's possible, more homeschooling. But I think we have to get out from under the uh, dogmatic thumb of these women that have proven themselves to be uh, um, uh, dramatic, uh, dramatic, emotional proponents of Democrat policies and vehemently opposed to anything that would be Republican, and particularly anything resembling Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, th- thank you for that, Andy. It's, uh, I would suggest that that would be uh, interesting information. I'm sure some women may would uh, <laughs> say, what is going on here? On the other hand, I will make this comment. It is mothers who are up in arms about what's happening in our school systems right now, and are protecting and concerned about what's being taught to our children. Now, uh, as, uh, as many of these women will point out, it's not a Democrat or a Republican type of issue. It's, it's an issue around uh, raising their children and having control over what's being taught. So uh, there is that, and I just wonder how you would respond to that.
3: My, my comments don't deal with all women, certainly, and it's, it's, it tends to be the Gen Zers more than any other category, Not the generally not the older women. So certainly I'm not talking about all women, but right. I am talking about the the numbers in that population of college graduates yeah. uh, that support the Democrat Party. Uh, and by the way, I would add in another statistic uh, that it's been well-defined by Pew Research, Bob, that 50 percent of women young women who identify themselves as liberals have a mental health condition. Uh, that is not my statistic. It's done by a very reputable research firm, uh, Pew Research. Uh, and so I think that adds a, uh, a deepening problem to this whole issue. I'm not talking certainly about all women, just those that are in our public schools to in large abundance, larger than reality uh, should warrant. And again, we can document clearly the support of these women for the Democrat policy.
1: That's so interesting. Well, thank you for that. And by the way, you'd mentioned charter schools and school choice, which is so important in today's environment. And I noted that uh, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee is uh, uh, actually promoting uh, a relationship with Hillsdale College and, of course, the Barney Charter School movement uh, and starting a uh, Uh, charter schools in Tennessee which is I think just a a remarkable development here so uh,
3: I think yeah I think you're supporting 11 Hillsdale uh, charter schools I think that was the number I remember reading and I I think that is certainly going in the right direction I uh, I mentioned in my blog and you you might be aware of it but I was the lead applicant for uh, two charter school submissions in in New York uh, both of which were defeated by the, uh, the Board of Regents uh, politically. I had a yeah. phone call 11 o'clock at night from a friend who was on the Board of Regents in New York, and she whispered to me. She actually literally whispered to me, uh, Andy, you're not going to get this through. You're going to get defeated. And uh, not... With cause, it was just a matter of a, a political defeat for my for my charter school submission. Uh, we had submitted one year. We uh, responded to the uh, the comments that they made that were were negative. We uh, we changed all those areas. Uh, And we submitted again and were again defeated politically. The school system was against us. The unions were against us. And and again, it was a very difficult political battle. It still is in many areas, Bob.
1: It certainly is. In fact, the uh, Biden administration wants to insert new regulations coming from the Department of Education to make, uh, for example, uh, any charter school that started in the United States has to have a sponsor, a public school sponsor. (laughs) It's, you can't make this stuff up i'm not kidding but obviously well, this is
3: one thing that's left out of the discussion is the a charter school is a public school yeah true um, it is it is it is bound by all the state laws on education it must meet all the state requirements uh, it is a public school the vast majority of them, if not all are in fact open enrollment there is no uh, it's not a selective enrollment uh, first come first serve for most of these schools So uh, but this notion that the charter school is is foreign to the public school system uh, is absolutely erroneous. It is a legitimate part of the public school system.
1: Well, I'd like to make this comment that uh, I serve on the board of the Optima Foundation, which we proudly start charter schools here in Florida. And I believe we're going to start starting them uh, having uh, influence in Louisiana as well because of relationships and how they develop. Uh, Erica Donalds is the leader, of course, of the uh, Optima Foundation and founder. She just does a great job. And we've started, of course, Naples uh, Classical Academy right here in Naples, Florida, is uh, is one of the uh, birthing's that we've had of charter schools here in Florida for uh, f- through the Optima Foundation. So a little shout out for school Early choice. On,
3: I was I was asked uh, somewhat casually to maybe consider being on the board of that of that academy. Um, uh, Again, it was not a a firm offer, just a suggestion that I might want to consider that, but didn't have the time to go in that direction. Uh, I think charter schools uh, are the answer. I'm not as committed to vouchers. Uh, Because, again, that allows for the creation of very demographically skewed type of of schools. In other words, you could devote a school to a particular community uh, or a demographic as compared to the charter schools, which cannot do that. So I'm an advocate of the charter schools, not so much for the voucher school because of because of what I just defined
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to move to uh, what's happening in Ukraine and globally. Do you have any comments and thoughts?
3: Well, gosh, yes. I mean, there's. There's so much going on. I mean, right now, as to what's to be anticipated, Russia's being accused of, of chemical warfare and, of course, uh, war crimes. Um, those may or may not be true. There's a countless number of examples as to uh, um, false flags that have been generated, black flags in this type of of, of circumstance. So these things might be true. Uh, in Mariupol, there's 10,000 civilians dead. Uh, as to what is the cause of those, if you arm civilians with guns, they're not civilians. So it's it's very hard during the, uh, the actual heat of war uh, to make these determinations. And I'm not suggesting that Russia is not guilty of these things. Right. I'm just suggesting that it was to be anticipated that these charges would be made uh, and again, they're impossible to define accurately as the war is actually uh, unfolding, Bob.
1: Right, Well, and I'll, I'll make this comment too. Actually, uh, Putin and Russia had absolutely no right. It, it is a war crime to invade with no provocation whatsoever to go into Ukraine and uh, with all the tanks and all the things that they've done. No question about that. That should be penalized, and somehow uh, I think Putin should be brought to justice for what he's done. But that said, I think there's a lot going on uh, on the belly of this entire thing that we don't know about and and is perhaps we, we should be more suspect or, or circumspect on what we uh, on uh, what we're seeing
3: Well, without making Russia's case, I think Russia would see it quite differently than that. I think they do did see uh, a serious provocation being offered by eastward expansion of NATO uh, since the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Hmm. Uh, I think that uh, Putin gave, I would say, fair warning, if I'm making his case now, fair warning that there would be uh, serious repercussions if this type of of potential uh, was to get extended into a closer reality. And I think Zelensky did nothing to uh, to cool that potential. Uh, so I think, and again, without making Russia's position, I think he would would disagree totally with a, a war without provocation. I think he would see there was serious provocation, and I think that probably is worth debating in, in some other environment, Bob.
1: And you know what? I'm thank thankful. Uh, thank you for uh, pointing that out. What what I don't understand is why Zelensky uh, won't move towards the the peace talks with Putin. After all, he's willing to concede many of the things that Putin is asking for. What's the holdup?
3: I, I have no idea. I mean, somebody could say it's just just ego. Uh, others can say that uh, it's being resisted by the oligarchs that Trump prom- that uh, put him into position to start with in 2014. Uh, but right now, what I'm seeing is Ukraine being uh, armed sufficiently to fight, but not armed sufficiently to win. I don't even know if that threshold could be reached, a, a winning uh, effort against Russia. Uh, my personal view is that Putin cannot, will not allow Russia to be defeated in this. And that's a, it's a dangerous statement I just made, because I think that it, it will probably indicate a, an escalation uh, that Putin will go through if he saw that Russia was in danger of losing this war. And God knows what that escalation might be. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is serious damage to the Ukraine people, to the Ukraine infrastructure. And I, at this point, I, I just, I guess as with you, I do not see the purpose of it at this point, Bob.
1: I agree. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Talk soon, my friend. All right. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to have more here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Harden show here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network
1: Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees.
0: Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host,
1: Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Well, we're out of time, unfortunately. I've got so much more to talk about, but we'll have to wait until tomorrow. We've got great guests lined up for tomorrow. So I hope you will join us. I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please tell your friends. That's how we grow it organically, and I know our uh, advertisers will appreciate it as well.